Welcome to the DTB podcast for March 2021, volume 59, number three. My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. And once again, thank you for joining us for our podcast, which we are recording at the beginning of February. Uh, In the UK, we're still in lockdown, and I calculate that it is now 316 days since I started working from home. However, this week, I have great excitement. Both me and the dog, uh, we've got some people putting a fence up in our garden. So that's about as much excitement as you get around here. Um, how about you, James? Have you? Um, well, I think probably our, our biggest bit of excitement is that we are due to do our 10,000th vaccination very shortly. Locally, we've set up a big sort of collaborative vaccination centre. All nine local practices in West Berkshire have joined together in one big centre at the race course. And um, we're just about to do our 10,000th vaccination. So that's, that's our exciting bit of news. So you've cleared all the hurdles and are galloping away. We've, we're, we were late out of the traps, but we're coming up on the rails, as they say. Excellent. And from a delivery point of view, it's all working. Yes. I mean, this, it's this push system. So we have no currently um, control over what vaccine we get. It's very clear that if you don't use up all the vaccine, you don't get so much the next week. But I think there's still an issue around the fact that we are, you know, nine practices, about 120,000 population that we're looking after at the hub and yet certainly to begin with they were treating us as if we were just a standard sort of gp sized hub with perhaps 30 to 50,000 so we we have struggled to get the volumes in that we wanted to get things going but we're on target i think to hit the mid february valentine's day target so um uh, yeah all, it's all good and i have to say it's it, it's been a really collaborative uplifting effort to get we've got about 400 volunteers helping us out um loads of uh, retired clinicians have come out and uh, helping us and we've managed to sort of shortcut a lot of the issues that we had with them expecting to have all kinds of pieces of paper and we've really got i, I you know blowing my own trumpet perhaps with a really slick operation and uh, yeah no very pleased with how it's all running good well fantastic news and also shows what the nhs does when, you know, when it does things very well um let's just talk before we move away from the vaccine let's just touch on the was it an unfortunate media storm last week over use in older people of the astrazeneca vaccine did that raise any questions at your hub it's been it's been a really interesting scenario actually you get you get everything you get you know i want the oxford one because that's you know local and it's sort of made in england and you get other people who've done a bit more work and want the pfizer one because it's more effective i'm afraid our approach is you you get what you're given because that's all we could do uh, and you know let's be honest the, the the important thing is is to get some protection you know we know from the flu vaccination program that we do every year which is only probably a 60 to 70% effective jab that it makes a huge difference, particularly now we are vaccinating children. I mean, the instance of flu has plummeted in the last two or three years in the UK. So let's just get people with some sort of protection. And so, yeah, it, it's not been a major issue. And I think, you know, the fact the European Medicines Agency has just approved the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine for use in patients of any age of their adults um, just demonstrates, I think, that there's been a lot of hot air going around. And, um, thankfully it looks like the people are calming down now i mean it was it's unfortunate isn't it when these things blow up 
and you fear that it's going to either have some impact on people's confidence or willingness to come forward for the vaccine. And, and this was a bit of a, you know, a story amongst, I was going to say nerds, but it's not quite that, but it's about looking at data and trying to read possibly too much into it. Yes, there isn't much data for, for older people as we, as, as we know from the, the information we've seen from the MHRA, but the immune response was comparable with young, younger people. And it just seemed to worry me that, this was going to maybe shake people's confidence. And it's the last thing we want just at the moment, that the vaccine, which is approved for any age above the, above the age of 18, we don't want people then turning around and, and being worried about its effect in, in older people. And as you say, let's, let's just get it into people's arms mm. because it, it, it is going to produce some effect and a benefit. And I think as you, know, as, as you and I know, looking at all the studies on new drugs, you never know you know, completely what either the efficacy or safety of anything is going to be in the first uh, few years of, of any new drug or, or modality. So it's always going to be an element of that. But what you can do is you can look at the history behind all these vaccinations, particularly the Oxford one, because it's a much more established sort of uh, system of production. You know, it would be very unusual for, for it not to follow in the path of all those vaccinations that go before it. So I think you can stand on the, on the shoulders of giants to some extent and use past experiences and past history to at least allow some uh, sort of influence on you. And certainly that's what the EMA have done in their discussion of, of its effectiveness. I think what's so interesting about the times we're living through at the moment is that this sort of scientific debate, and it was largely a scientific debate between the, I think it was the German equivalent of our JCVI, their recommendation committee for vaccination, who looked at the data and come to one decision based on their particular set of circumstances and what they had available in Germany. Now, all that debate normally doesn't surface in the media, but just because it's COVID, it's, it's all amplified and we hear much more of it. And it's just unfortunate when that nuances of the science may impair uh, people's confidence and it's it's how you balance that to make sure that the right messages uh, are coming out and, and not sort of the, the, the minutiae of, of scientific debate. Absolutely when you think of, of how much the media has been awash with CMOs talking about risk and about you know the, the, the complexity of some of the debates that have been going on has really demonstrated the need for, for good communication at, at all the right levels. And it exactly takes us back to our, our plea about the vaccine when it first appeared. Make sure the information is clear and, and available at the time you need it. But that's we've, we've been down that route before. So let's, let's crack on with, with today's podcast. We'll talk a bit about the editorial. Uh, we're going to talk about bisphosphonate holidays, talk about the review article, and then uh, end up with a, with a case report. So kicking off with our editorial, this is picking up the MHRA's proposal that in the future packaging for opioids should contain a printed warning about the risk of addiction. Uh, James, do you want to say a bit more about that and what are our concerns? Yeah, so this was uh, September 2020. The MHRA produced a national safety alert based on some evidence from the Commission on Human Medicines. This was uh, set up earlier and I actually hadn't really recognized that the Commission on Human Medicines has now been around for about 15 years. And they give advice to the government on safety, quality or efficacy of medicines. And they were really concerned about the increased risk of dependence in patients who took opioids for more than three months. 
And the plan now is that all boxes of opioids will have on them can cause addiction. And also in addition, the MHRA is producing an information leaflet, which also details that opioids have a serious risk of addiction. Now we're, you know, we've picked up this before. We had an article um, a couple of years ago by Dr. Stannard about concerns of long-term use of opioids. You talked about it in an editorial at the end of last year with the looking at NICE's um, draft guidance on the management of chronic primary pain and suggesting that pharmacotherapy has much less of a role than we've and used in, than it has in, the, it has in the past. So lots of concerns about opioids and their long-term use in chronic pain. But here we're dealing with group of people who may have life limiting conditions for whom longer term use of an opioid might be appropriate and the concern may be that these printed warnings on the on the pack will will be seen by everybody no matter what your your reason for taking an opioid and is that likely to have an impact on people's willingness to to take the drug exactly and i think and i think it, it was concerning. I've, I've, I've read the leaflet and one of the things the leaflet says is that if your pain is becoming difficult to manage, it could be a sign of opioid tolerance and can be an early sign of addiction. Well, I think if you are a patient with a life limiting condition such as cancer, and let's, be, let's remember pain remains the most feared symptom of cancer. And you know, so if you're being treated for pain as a cancer patient, palliative care, and you find it's not being controlled, you know, there's a risk that you'll, you know, your relatives or you, you yourself might think, oh my goodness, this is a sign I'm becoming addicted to my opioids and I, you know, perhaps I should stop taking them. And the second point I think is that increasingly now patients are looked after by a wide ranging team, GP, nurses, clinical pharmacists, the uh, dispensing pharmacist. And the MHRA is asking us all to check that the patient is taking the correct medication and they're taking their opioids correctly. And there's a risk that one of us in that team will challenge a patient who's got cancer on palliative care around their opioids, and that could create distress. So I think there are some issues here, and it's not a big issue. I think it's really important. We know that opioids are a major issue. I was shocked to be reminded that opioids and Z drugs have doubled in use between the year 2000 and the year 2012. So this is a big issue, but it's about just getting that balance, as David Erskine suggests in the title. We need to strike the right balance when it comes to opioid safety. Yes, and it's, it's about that shared communication and making sure that everybody in all parts of the team knows what's going on so that, they, as you said, they don't, don't give the wrong message. Okay, thank you very much. Um, let's move on to our forum article. This one discusses bisphosphonate holidays lots been talked about this topic i have to say this is one of the clearest articles that i've come across again james do you want to say something about it yes um ian reed did a fantastic article for us on vitamin d and calcium supplementation and this is another really clear article for him and in it he just sets out the whole issue around bisphosphonates the fact that these are drugs with an exceptionally long half-life for years and years and years. Um, they are effective in reducing bone fracture from osteoporosis, but they have a couple of nasty side effects up their sleeves, the atypical femoral fractures and osteonecrosis of the jaw. And what he does is he just teases out the positives 
of the management of fracture risk with bisphosphonates versus these adverse effects and just gives us a really good balance on where he thinks we should sit and the issue regarding whether we should be considering bisphosphonate holidays and how you determine whether you should or should not consider one. So it's a really nice article. It's one of those articles that reminds you about all the, the issues around bisphosphonates, which are drugs that we increasingly use in patients' medication who are getting older and the population getting older. So I think it's a great article, and it's only a 1,000 words, so it's a, it's a win-win. And what I particularly liked about it was that the key message for me at the end was that the, the holiday, it, it's an option, um, and there's some people you wouldn't advise having a break from, from the drug, but there are some who, who could consider it. But then it's a holiday and not a retirement, as he, as he neatly says in the, in the article. It, the, the longer you're off it, you may reduce your risk of an atypical femoral fracture, but then you'll start to sway back to the increased risk of a vertebral or um, other form of a fracture. So it's, it's about that balance. So, yes, it's a holiday, not a retirement. Absolutely. And, you know, not all bisphosphonates are the same. So some have a very, very long half-life. Others have less long a life. And therefore, you've got to make sure you balance that up as well. Yes, really, really useful article. And it's probably just worthwhile reminding ourselves that NICE doesn't discuss drug holidays. Sign does mention drug holidays for zolendronate only. And NOG uh, suggests that if treatment is discontinued for any reason, you should reassess after... 18 months to three years if they've had no new fracture or if a new fracture occurs, reassess treatment options at that point. So the main national guidance doesn't really cover this area, but I think Ian Reid's article is, is well worth a read and gives a very sound, balanced approach to these drugs. Thank you very much. Uh, so moving on to our main article, this looks at the risk of medicines being contaminated by nitrosamines. This is a story that we've we've uh, lived through over the last two or three years with with various medicines. Do you want to talk about brief highlights for this one? Yes, I mean we could get very stuck into the nanograms per kilogram of body weight that um, the WHO suggests is toxic for nitrosamines. But actually, I think for most of us, this is a this is a story that goes back to 2018 when Valsartan. Suddenly, we were not getting hold of Valsartan because various batches were being withdrawn because they seemed to be contaminated with nitrosamine and then you know that's built on herbisartan low sartan briefly in march 2019 also had problems and then you'll remember the ranitidine story once again that started around october 2019 multiple ranitidine products were withdrawn all due to this uh, contamination with one particular nitrosamine called ndma what's interesting about the ranitidine story is whilst it seemed that the valsartan issue was down to a particular active ingredient made in a plant in china and seemed to be due to a change in that production of a part or a chemical that makes up part of valsartan in 2012 with the ranitidine story what's interesting is it seems that actually ranitidine quietly degrades and actually produces NDMA as part of that degradation. So there's actually an issue with um, ranitidine, if you like, going off on the shelf, regardless of how well it's been uh, made in the factories. Also some concern that ranitidine might actually be forming nitrosamine in vivo as it's metabolized. So that's really why I think, you know, we've not seen ranitidine back on our shelves because those issues are still being looked at by the regulators so this is a story of contamination of drugs which of course there's 
a long history of contamination of drugs over the last hundreds of years. But I think what, what is Im impressive about this is how quickly the national bodies have got on top of this. Um, the MHRA has actually given a deadline for September 2022 that all licensed medications will be reviewed for the presence of uh, these nitrosamines, check that they're safe. And as, as um, David Erskine details, the actual level of danger to patients from this contamination is, is well put in his article. So for example, he, he details that if you had taken a contaminated batch of Valsartan at its maximum dose every day from 2012 to 2018, the excess cancer risk would have been about one in 5,000. So we're, we're talking about, yes, a definite risk, but one that for most people is probably less than the sort of contamination that they see in eating things like processed meats, bacon, cheese, dairy products, even just drinking water. And that was the point, isn't it, that, that these are not confined to medical products or, or drugs. The, these contaminants are in cigarette smoke or in, I say in, in, in water. And therefore, if patients are concerned they're, they're, and ask about it, you know, is it relevant to talk about the other risks from or the other contaminant ways they might get contaminated than just drugs so that they can put it in some form of perspective? I think that's absolutely right, isn't it? I think it's, you know, as so often is the case, I, I did a little bit of reading around and uh, there's some smoked beef that you can buy that is something like a thousand times over the daily limit for the WHO levels of exposure for most people. So um, there are certainly other products out there which you can consume to your heart's content without being aware at all that they're contaminated with these sorts of things. And certainly, you know, we shouldn't um, play down the concerns over over the medicines. And it's absolutely right. The regulator um, has stepped in and has asked manufacturers to uh, confirm, you say, by the deadline that that their products are not are not con contaminated. So, you know, it's it's good news that 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 is being done, and that um, hopefully this is will be far less of a, a problem in the future. Indeed, yeah. Okay, and finally, our case report. What was this one about? This was a good case report because it's, there's so many different learning points at so many different levels. This was a, a case report of a 90-year-old patient who is admitted with a TIA and she's already taking a calcium channel blocker, nifedipine, for her blood pressure. And as is quite right, you know, following all the guidance, she started on clopidogrel and atorvastatin. And then 150 days later, she's actually admitted um, under an acute elderly care clinic because she's got some shoulder pain and a highly raised alkaline phosphatase nine times the uh, usual limit. We've also raised liver transaminases too and gamma GT. And this is a, a really interesting case report that details actually that it was her atorvastatin that was causing her raised alkaline phosphatase and actually atorvastatin has been shown to be often give a more cholestatic sort of picture to liver enzyme rise than we normally expect from statins. The, the, the sort of irony of this in a sense is that so not only did they stop her atorvastatin when she was admitted and sure enough her, her enzymes dropped very quickly she also had a significant nosebleed five days after that, and so they stopped her clopidogrel as well. And so this woman who had been admitted to hospital with a TIA actually 
about three months later, was off all the drugs that, that she'd been started on by that and actually was better off as a result. And I think it just demonstrates that, you know, it's, it's a balance, isn't it, between um, a lot of these drugs. And as the writers of the case report point out, you know, we've got the PROSPER study, which suggested that stroke, stroke prevention by statins in the elderly is very weakly a positive benefit of statins. So perhaps we need to be more careful at using this combination of statins with clopidogrel with calcium channel blockers because they all use the same metabolism pathway the p450 pathway and there's clearly some interaction in some patients it was interesting that just looking through some some of the details that i say these cases often throw out more questions than than, than answers but as, as far as i could make out the atorva wasn't started straight away after the the tia it, it was begun many weeks after and even the clopidogrel wasn't started until i think day 20 so quite what was happening in the first early stages because i'd assume that, that from the point of the tia and, and having had the aspirin then the clopidogrel would have been started and atorvastatin at the same time but didn't didn't appear to in this in this particular case i couldn't quite work out why that was and the other question i had was her blood pressure as reported in the in the case seemed to be quite low or at least normal again you wonder whether she could have come off the nifedipine as well and then had no drugs and maybe that would be the best outcome it's very interesting isn't it i mean i just think it goes to show that we we just have to make sure that we keep the patient uppermost in our minds and um yeah you, you can do all the guidelines you like and sometimes it just doesn't work out and the, the report from the, or the case report itself suggested that the, the patient was delighted by the outcome. <laughs> she didn't, didn't have to take two meds yes. that uh, she didn't particularly want to. So uh, I suppose it was a win, win all round in, in, yes, indeed. in the final analysis. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site. It'd be great to hear from you. You can find the link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, you can email us directly at dtb at bmj.com. And just at the moment on our website, we are running a survey on DTB to find out what readers think of our content. Uh, feel free to find it. It's on the homepage uh, right at the top. So if you wish to fill in a survey about DTB, please do so. Again, it'd be lovely to hear from you. Once again, thank you for listening and we hope you'll be able to join us uh, for April's podcast in a month's time. Thank you very much. Bye.